there's, a, there's a church out there that I preach once a year. Um, the pastor, he's a pastor of a singles ministry, came to New Community for four years. And so go out there and uh, preach for him in the ministry once a year. I, I just mentioned that to say this. I, I love preaching here. You guys are my favorite group of people to preach to. I'm having a moment right now. Um, because I go to lots of places and I, I, just, uh, I just, when I go and I come back, I, I come back with a renewed sense of appreciation because not a lot of places um, can be receptive. Maybe sometimes it's difficult truth. And I never have to worry about that here. And I can't tell you how freeing that is for me. Um, how freeing that is for me. And I just, you know, coming back, just thank you, Lord, for a new community in my church family that we get to talk about really hard stuff. I mean, even stuff we're talking about, emotionally healthy spirituality. I can't tell you how many people came up to me or have come up to me and said, we can't do that at the home church I came from. Because <laughs> if we try, people will walk out. And I just thought about that. I'm like, how amazing it is that we have a church family that's willing to go there, you know? Have you thought about that? It's just, uh, and not only that, but hearing conversations about what's happening in small groups, another amazing encouragement. Um, I just, uh, so I, your pastor's thankful for you is what I'm trying to say. Uh, we've been talking about emotionally healthy spirituality, and I, let me just put up the definition um, that we've been, and this isn't me, I didn't come up with this, we're following Peter Scazzaro and, and, and a big bulk of his material, but we've been defining emotional health as our ability to be self-aware and to love well, as being inseparable with spiritual immaturity. It's not possible to become spiritually mature while becoming emotionally immature. And so there's a lot there, and we've been kind of unpacking that on Sundays and conversations. And today, as we continue to talk about pathways to becoming emotionally healthy and thereby spiritually mature, we've talked, started last week talking about how one of the foundational issues is getting to know ourselves. And in order to get to know ourselves, we have to do this difficult journey of going back. Because it's common sense, but our ability to love well now is very much impacted by what's happened in our past. You can't divorce what happened in the past and the influences to our present ability to love well and to be self-aware. The challenge, of course, is that many of us don't want to go back because going back in past is painful. It's, it's hard it's emotionally gut-wrenching for some of us. It's, we've buried depths of it. And so the thought of going back and uncovering the past, even though we at some levels know that it's impacting our present, it's hard. But if we ignore truth of what's happened to us in the past, we could wind up like Miss Havisham of Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations. Do you remember? Daughter of a wealthy businessman, woman, man. She gets a letter on her wedding day, right at 8.40 a.m., that her husband-to-be was not going to come. 
So she basically lives as if her entire life stops. So she lives for the rest of her life in her wedding dress, which ultimately turns yellow. She ultimately lives the rest of her life wearing one shoe because when the letter came at 8.40, one shoe was on and the other shoe wasn't. The crushing blow of that news basically held her prisoner to that one moment in the past. Truth be told, some of us haven't moved beyond what's happened to us in the past. Do you realize that if we can't move forward from what's happened to us in the past, you can't, by definition, live in the present if you're living in the past. And if you're living in the past, by very definition, you can't hope for the future. And last we opened up a can of worms because when we talk about our past, you can't get on talking about our families and our family of origin. By the way, just to share with you, so my wife and I, you know, and we were talking about this, and my wife at home goes, you know, Peter, I kind of didn't really resonate today, and she's kind of half-joking. She goes, I came from a pretty good family. And I joked around with her. I said, you know, I know your brothers, and they would actually completely disagree with you. And I said, isn't it the very definition of an unhealthy, dysfunctional family when the children talk as if they came from two totally different families? Do you know what I'm talking about? And some of y'all sitting here going, I came from a pretty good family. Ask your siblings. Our family of origin, do you have any idea how much they're impacting you today? We saw even biblically, there are consequences of actions, decisions from generation that go on to other generations. Some of it bad, of course, and other blessings, but we are deeply impacted by my mom, my dad, my grandparents, uncles, aunts, extended family. Who we are today has been profoundly shaped by our families. Now, the good news, 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 the good news is what? In the gospel, we know that we don't have to be defined by our family of origin because God causes us to be born into a brand new family called the church. Amen? And we don't have to be defined by and live with the expectations and habits and sinful patterns of our fast. Because one of the things that God wants to do, this is discipleship. Discipleship is just not you and God in quiet time. Discipleship is relearning how to do life according to God's values in his new family. That's a big part of discipleship. And the good news is that's possible. As somebody once said, what was learned can be what? Unlearned. And so we began this journey last week in this mini two-part in this larger sermon series about going back, looking at family of origin, honestly, honestly, honestly. Rigorous honesty, because the only, the truth can set us free. And if you are sitting here right now, and even already you're going, I don't want to go there. The only way to move forward is with rigorous honesty and being willing to, okay. You know, Peter, you realize I haven't talked about this with anybody. I realize this is not something that I even bring up in Christian circles. Well, in order for us to move forward, church family, we need to go there. So last week, uh, we looked at 
the life of Joseph. One-fourth of the book of Genesis is about Joseph growing up into an emotionally and spiritually mature adult. And as we saw last week, Joseph comes from a dysfunctional, broken family with generational patterns of lying and favoritism and sibling rivalry and poor intimacy in marriage. But one of the things that we see is Joseph, who could have very much, like some of us said, this is what I've been given, this is my lot, so I'm not going to, I'm just trapped And not to do anything, we see Joseph somehow breaking free, breaking free, breaking free from his family of origin, breaking free from sinful patterns, breaking free, not only to walk away healed, but get this, blessing the very same people who try to hurt him. Previously, in emotionally healthy spirituality, We looked at Joseph in Genesis 37. And if you were not here last week, here's one minute cap, you know, of of what happened. Joseph grows up in a blended family of uh, 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 Jacob, his father, having two wives and two concubines and their number of siblings. And grows up, of course, one of 12 brothers. He's the 11th of 12. And Jacob favors Joseph more than anybody else. He's lavishing money on Joseph. And his brothers hate him for it. They hate, they murderously hate him for it. And Joseph doesn't help the situation because he's turning into a cocky, arrogant, self-absorbed psychopath. If you were not here last week, that's what we talked about, Okay. And so one day when Jacob says, Joseph, go check on your brothers, his brothers hatch up a clan to kill him. But instead of killing him, what do they do? They strip him of the favorite clothes that his father bought for him, throw him into a pit, hoping that he'd be abandoned to die. And then they change their mind. They decide to sell him to a merchant who's heading down to Egypt. Then they go home and they tell their brothers about this fanciful lie about how their brother was mauled by an animal. They hold a fake funeral. Let's talk about a family. And meanwhile, Joseph goes down to Egypt, and God's hand is on him, and he rises up in the ranks of the Potiphar's house. But just when things look like they're going well, what happens? He gets accused of rape by his boss's wife, thrown into prison. He languishes from 10 to 13 years. By the way, when he's in prison, he has an opportunity to get out, but the guy that has the power to get him out, what? Forgets. And ultimately, through some amazing, extraordinary circumstances, the Pharaoh has a dream nobody in the land can interpret. Joseph, of course, is able to interpret the dream. So Joseph not only comes out of prison, but he gets promoted to be the prime minister, second most powerful man in Egypt. Decades pass. There's a famine in all the known land. And Joseph's brothers are told to go to Egypt where there's grain. And Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. And they are standing in front of their brother, their bro. Their little bro. I have no idea who he is. And we pick up the story in Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept. Everybody say wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. 
When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What? We talked about that last week. Verse 6, for two years now there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of the entire household and ruler of all Egypt. So now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping, verse 15, and he kissed all his brothers and he wept over them. And his father Jacob passes away after brothers and all the family have moved down to Egypt. And we pick up this story. This is where I want to spend most of my time here, Genesis 50. They carried him, that is Jacob, to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? And pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. To which I'm going, you're right, he des- you deserve it. Verse 16, so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers and sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God, your father. My translation, Joseph, remember Dad said, be nice. (laughs) When their message came to him, Joseph, what? He wept. Seven times in the passage that I just read for you, Joseph is weeping. He's weeping. Why? He is acknowledging, honestly, the brokenness and the sadness of his family. And I'll say this again. And I'll say this again. Joseph is honestly acknowledging the brokenness and sadness of his family. He is not. What some of us are tempted to do. He is not brushing off the sadness and brokenness of his family. It doesn't matter. He is not rationalizing the brokenness and sadness of family. Everybody, every family is broken. 
our, our parents, my parents tried the best. He is remembering and feeling to his core the brokenness and the sadness of his family. Can I ask you a question? Have you honestly mourned and grieved the brokenness and the sadness of your family? Of course not. Truth be told, most of us resist doing it. Why? Three reasons, real quick. I'll tell, for me, one, I think I'm going to feel worse. I, I, well, I, I, that will make me feel worse, so no, I will not. I will rationalize, brush it off. Some of us, some of us, believe it or not, we actually, we actually think that it doesn't matter. What good is it going to do after all these years? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm a grown-up adult. I've forgotten about it. I've moved on. Some of us, oh, my Asian-American brothers and sisters. Actually, I always talk. It, it relates to other cultures with similar sort of culture values. Some of us actually think doing that is being disloyal to our parents. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We're being disloyal somehow if I go back and honestly look at and grieve and mourn and remember and feel the sadness brokenness in my family. And here's the truth that I want to tell you. It, it is not dishonoring our parents to go back and remember and feel the brokenness. Because the Bible clearly says we're to honor our parents, but we're to be loyal to God first. It's not being disloyal to our parents to say, I'm going to go back and think about the brokenness and the sadness and the sins in my family. It's about being real and being honest. I share that with you because I struggle with that. I'm 45, going to be 46 in three weeks. I've struggled with that most of my life. I've struggled with honestly admitting my parents who did their best and their brokenness and their fallenness because I thought if I did that, then I'm dishonoring. No, it's not. But why is this important? Because here's the reason why. Forgiveness could only come out of honest grieving. Forgiveness could only come out of honest grieving. Some of us in this room have been trying to forgive some people, maybe even our parents, your whole life. Why? Because you haven't honestly grieved the loss, the hurt, the sadness, the betrayal, and the brokenness. So it keeps coming back. Keeps coming back. Keeps coming back. And you and I are never free. You and I are never free. From what we haven't forgiven. If you haven't forgiven someone, you and I are still in prison of our bitterness, of our hatred, of our anger. Joseph has the opportunity right here, right now, to destroy his brothers. But out of, why do I, why did I mention seven times he wept? But out of honest grieving the loss and the sadness and brokenness, he's able to look at his brothers and go, I forgive you. I'm going to say this again. Emotionally healthy spirituality, spiritual maturity, you cannot forgive someone if you have not genuinely grieved and mourned loss. Church, is this making sense to you? This is hard though, Yes.
The other reason why Joseph weeps, which is the big bulk of what I want to get to, is that even though he'd forgiven his brothers and he's expressed forgiveness to them for selling in the slavery, listen carefully, you can't rebuild a relationship that was that broken overnight. The reweaving of trust that's been shattered takes time, takes months, takes years. And his brothers just don't trust him yet. And because the reconciliation is incomplete, there's more work to do. So we pick up the story and we'll finish here. Verse 18, his brothers and came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, listen to his words and let his words sink in. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? First thing. Secondly, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And third, so don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph completes this reconciliation process with his brothers. Three things he does. And if you're sitting here today, you're sitting here today, you look at your family of origin, you look at the consequences and decisions and actions, and you look at how you have been profoundly shaped and you're desperately desiring to go forward, move forward in your journey with Jesus. If there is reconciliation, forgiveness that needs to happen with anybody, three things that Joseph does are three things that are instructive for us. First, he avoids God's chair. Second, he sees God's view. And third, he images God's love. First, he avoids God's chair. What do I mean? Verse 19, he says, don't be afraid. Am I? Say it with me. Am I? In the place of God. And when Joseph says this, he's tapping into something that the Bible says is the foundation of it all. Putting ourselves in the place of God is the heart of almost everything that ails us. I thought I'd give you a visual. Putting ourselves in the place of God is foundational to everything. Putting ourselves, sitting in God's chair, is the foundational issue that ails every single one of us. Do you remember what the first temptation was to Adam and Eve? You can be what? Like God. I need to be really quick about this because the bulk of this sermon is in other points. How do we do this? How do you and I go, God, get out of my chair. I'm going to sit in your chair. Real quick. First way, we do this by being our moral authority. We do this by being our own moral authority. We do this by being our own moral authority. In the very beginning, when God had everything the way he wanted, exactly the way he wanted, do you remember how many rules there were? (laughs) Sorry. There was one rule. It's a really short Bible. You could have fit it inside of a fortune cookie, okay? There was one rule, all right? Just to give you a visual, I'm like visual. Could have cracked it. One rule. Oh, there it is. Which was what? Which was what? You could eat of any tree. Here's one rule. Which was what? But do not eat of that tree. One rule. Just real quick. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, and somehow you've been led to believe that the foundation of Christianity is rules, 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 you need to know. Go back to the beginning. God never intended that Christianity be a bunch of rules. He had one rule. 
And the rule was, you could eat of any tree, but don't eat of that tree. One rule. Why is that important? When the serpent comes and says, eat from that tree and you will be just like God. You will be as God. What did he mean? I don't know about you, but when I was little, I used to think, oh, that apple must have had, I don't know why I got an apple. That fruit must have had some God juice in it. So if you ate it, you got God juice in you. And somehow you were able to, come on, nobody else thought that? Really? Am I the only one? I'm the only weird one. Oh, that's what I thought, right? I'm like, that's a mystical tree, an apple. And I was like, no, that's not what it meant. It's a lot more plain than that. What did it mean when the serpent says, eat that fruit and you can be as God? He's absolutely right. He's saying, when you eat of it, what is he saying? He's saying, you could be your own moral authority and choose what is right or wrong. God's command to say, don't eat from that tree. Fundamental, nothing special about the tree. His fundamental command was, trust me and my word as ultimate authority. Are you hearing me? So the servant says, go ahead. He's essentially saying, get in God's chair and decide for yourself what's right or wrong. Now, here's how we do it in our culture. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. You know what I hear a lot in our culture? Because nobody's walking around going, I'm not going to lose no God's word. I'm going to do whatever. Here's what we say in our culture. We say stuff like this. Listen, come on, huh? Nobody seriously takes the Bible in its entirety. It's so ancient and primitive and narrow. Who does that? No, no, come on. There's some things that are good. And some things aren't. So we kind of pick and choose what we want to obey and what we don't want to obey. Because we now know. The problem with that whole thought, listen please very carefully, is the little word now. No. What do I mean? I was just talking to somebody about this. Did you ever go back and listen and read stuff that people were saying 50 years ago? Good Lord, man. You look at our current cultural perspective, you go, I can't believe they thought that. I can't believe they said that. They actually wrote that. Don't you think 50 years from now, your grandkids and children are going to look back to some of the stuff we think, we say, and do, and cringe and go, good Lord, embarrassing. You th- think about, I'm reasoning with you, the problem of saying, I'm going to let my current cultural perspective be absolute, and with that, I'm going to critique the Bible. Instead of saying, I'm going to let the Bible be absolute, and critique our constantly changing cultural landscape. Church, are you hearing me? Listen, I would never get up here and just blankly go, God's word is your authority, obey it. I am reasoning with you. I am reasoning with you. I am reasoning with you. It's been around for 2,000 years, and all of human civilization has looked upon it as being the word of God. You think that 2016, all of a sudden, we're more enlightened now? (laughs) listen to me carefully i'm not just saying go do do." i'm saying study it meditate on it submit to it study it wrestle with it submit to it because when you go i'm gonna let my cultural perspective my opinions decide what's right or wrong then letting the bible decide you are doing exactly what the serpent said to do 
yourself be the ultimate authority. Second way that we sit in God's chair, I need to be quick about this, is this, is when you let people look to you to meet their deepest needs. I need to say to like 80% of you, get off that chair. (laughs) And I'm in it, by the way. Why are you letting yourself meet people's deepest needs? Why are you doing that? You're not God. One of my favorite Old Testament stories with my kids is the story of Naaman in 2 Kings. Do you know that story? Naaman, he's a seer in general. He's got leprosy. And he's like, what do I do? A little servant girl says, go to Israel. There's a king there who could heal you. So he goes to Israel with gold and silver. And he goes, I am the general of Syrian army. Heal me. And the king of Israel tears his clothes. And he says, am I God? Am I God? His literary words are, can I kill or can I make alive? And he's absolutely right. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm just a king. I don't have what it takes for you to have your deepest needs met, for you to do for you what only God can do for you. And I need to remind some of us this morning, get the heck out of God's chair because you are not capable of meeting people's deepest needs. Dude, you're going, I don't do that. Really? Those of us in our helping professions, pastors, ministry people, social workers, teachers, good Lord, we are standing on a very dangerous edge. Are you allowing yourself to have people's deepest needs met? Can I even push it further? Do you get off on it? Do you enjoy that? Do you go, oh yeah, that, that's where I feel secure. People need me. That's why I know I'm okay. People can't live without me. Do you know how dangerous that is? Another way we do it, we all do it. If you have been in a relationship with two people, at some point you look at each other longingly and you go, you complete me. I've never heard those words to my wife. Ask her. You comp- what does that even mean? You complete me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Unfiltered this morning. And you're going like any other Sunday, Peter. Um, do you know how dangerous that is? When you're in a relationship and you allow yourself to meet the deepest needs of that person. Do you know what the worst thing that could happen is? That you get married. Lucy, you can't laugh that loud sitting right next to your husband. What is, come on now. Kenny and Ruth, will you just kind of be like, come on, come on, come on. There's a bunch of 20, you just shattered, you just shattered their dream notion. Do you know what we need to do? Metaphorically, not literally, okay? Metaphorically tear your clothes, not literally. You need to do what the king did, which is metal. You need to tear your clothes and you need to, at some point in that relationship, go, I am not God. I can't meet your deepest needs. I can't do for you what only God can do for you. I can't be for you what only God could be for you. I love you. Church, can I get an Amen. Because if you don't, I am telling you the worst thing that could happen is for you to get married because that marriage will implode under the expectation that no human being can meet. Third way we sit in God's chair is we excessively worry. 
Matthew 6, Jesus goes, why do you worry about what you eat, drink, or my heavenly father knows what you need. Why do you worry about, do you know what worry is? I'm just a worrying type. There's no such thing as just a worrying type. Worry is, I know how my life ought to go. I know exactly what's happened next year. I know the plans I have for me, thus saith Peter. And God is going to bless it. And worry comes when you go, God, I don't think you're going to get it right. It's God, I just don't think you're going to get it right. That is what worry is. And so when you get off of God's chair and to the extent that you go off of God's chair and you go, I don't know what ought to happen. I don't know what plans ought to work out. I could plan, but I don't ultimately know the degree to which you do that. And the more you do that, the worry lessens. If you're sitting here right now and you are wracked with anxiety and worry, it's because you're sitting in God's chair. Fourth way, I need to be quick. The way you sit in God's chair, there's like 10 of them, CC, but I only have time for four. The fourth way, are you getting the picture though? The fourth way you sit in God's chair, you and I, is by holding a grudge. And this is what this text, it's by keeping a grudge. Joseph says, I forgive you. Why? Am I in the place of God? What he's saying is everybody who keeps a grudge, everybody who stays resentful, every person who holds on to their anger towards someone who has wronged them is sitting in God's chair. This is the reason why God says in Romans 12, vengeance is what? Mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What's God saying? My translation, hey, Peter, get out of my chair. Do you know why the Bible says that only God has the right to judge? Real quick. One is because only God has the knowledge to bring judgment. When you sit there and you go, I'm not going to forget. I'm going to hold a grudge. I'm going to, do you know what and they, I know what, I know what they deserve. And I'm going to be mad at them until they get what they deserve. The problem is, how the heck do you and I know what they truly deserve? Unless you knew what influences they had. Unless you knew their history. Unless you knew all the things that's happened and impacted them to know and do why they would. And who only has full, complete knowledge of all that they've been through so that you know what they deserve? You? Me? Who? God. I'll tell you what I do. And this is my lovely wife who reminds me. When I have a difficult time with somebody, she goes, Peter, 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 put yourself in their shoes. To which I, I don't want to. No, no, no. Peter, think about it. Do you know what kind of family they came from? No. Do, do, do you know the ways that maybe they've been hurt? No. Do, do you know what kind of stuff that they've had? No. I just, I just for me, just even just thinking about the whole, I wonder what they've gone through. Lessons just a little bit the hardness. Makes me just a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more empathetic. But really, the most important reason why God says, get out of my chair, only I can judge, is actually not for God's sake, it's for our sake. What do I mean? God's the only person who has the power and authority to rightfully judge without the evil coming into him. Because when you and I hold a grudge, the evil that's been done to you, guess where it goes? When you don't forgive, you see bitter and angry. Our hearts get hard. 
our hearts get toxic. Our hearts, our hearts get bitter. And we turn into this self-absorbed, self-centered, bitter person. And the evil that's been done to it begins to come to us. Isn't that the whole plot device of Lord of the Rings? This great, terrible ring of power. Think about it. The Dark Lord. And, and the ring of power, if you use it, even in the name of justice against the Dark Lord, what happens? You turn in to the fear of evil. Only thing to do is throw it in the fire. What a picture. See, the irony is this, and I'll conclude with this and then move on. The faster way, the fastest way to become like Satan is to be God. The fastest way for you to turn into this evil, snarling, bittering is to be God. The fastest way to be like God is what? Is to refuse to be God. The second thing that we do, the second thing that we see in Joseph, he not only gets himself out of God's chair, he takes God's view. Verse 20. Tim, was there some water here somewhere, sir? Oh, thank you. Verse 20. See what Joseph does to take God's view. <laughs> and I, I honestly, this week, I, I, I mourned and wept and prayed about this point as I thought about specific people in our church family. Look what Joseph does. Verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I'm just going to say it up here right now. No human being is capable of having this perspective apart from the Holy Spirit. No human being is capable of having this perspective apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see it. Because if you could somehow see God's view to all that's happened to you and to me, we could face anything in life. The image that comes to mind of God's view, I've gone hiking twice in my whole life. And I say that not with a sense of, I've gone hiking twice in my life with pride. I say that totally embarrassed. The last time was in Korea. I was there two years ago. And here's the amazing thing. When you're in the valley and you're lost, hikers, you guys know, you have no idea where you're going. You have no idea where you're going. You're lost. The only way to get unlost is what? Somehow make your way to the top of the hill or the <laughs> top of the mountain. When you get to the top of the mountain and you look out, you go, that's where we came from. That's where we got stuck. Oh, we're stuck there for a while. Yeah, there's that ridge. There's that ridge. That's fine. We didn't go there. That, so that's how, and you come down. You know why that's instructive for us? It's a matter of perspective. If you get the perspective from the top, you'll be fine. But in the valley, you're utterly, totally lost. Can I ask you a question? How do you look at the troubles of your life? From the top or from the valley? 
from our human perspective from the valley, but from God's perspective from the top. Because when Joseph says these words that seem almost impossible to you and me, you hurt me. You meant it for evil, and it was evil. It was painful, but God meant it for good. He is giving us a view from here and not here. Because from down here, just like you, I can't hold those two things together. I'm just going to be honest. I can't, from this view, hold those two things together. I can't hold the, you meant it for good, but God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Church family, I'm just, I'm just confessing. I can't hold those two things together because from my perspective, it's either or, not both and. It's either life is good. Life is beautiful. If you're nice to people, people will be nice to you. You're kind to people and that, people will be kind to you. People are out there to help you. And if there are troubles and trials and hardships that come into your life, there are exceptions. There are anomalies. For the most part, life is good. You're good. God will be good to you. It's either that from down here or some of us, life stinks. Life is hard. Life is pessimistic. People are out to hurt you. It doesn't matter what you do to them. They will stab you in the back someday. Don't trust anybody. Your life is going good right now. Just wait. And when bad things happen, it's because God isn't there. When bad things happen, it's because God isn't love. If bad things are happening, it's because God has completely, completely lost control. That's the only perspective that I have down here. But Joseph's perspective, hello, anybody? It's not either or. It's what? Joseph's perspective is life is hard. Life is tragic. Life brings suffering. Life brings hardship. There is evil in the world. But God is good. But God is wise. But God is loving and in control. Church, what is your perspective today? Is it down here? And We so, we so need to hear this truth. When things are good, God is good. Bring on that song. But when things are bad, God is not there. God doesn't care. God is a loving. But when you're able to see what Joseph sees from his perspective, we have the confidence of knowing life is hard. Life hurts. There is evil in the world. But God... But God is good. But God is wise. But God is loving. Do you know how strong we would be if that truth took hold of our hearts? And do you remember from last week? We don't just pull this out of thin air and go like, okay, the both end. No, what Joseph is able to see from God's view is what? What is Joseph able to see? He's able to see as he looks back in life, unless things happened exactly the way they did, in the order they did, everybody dies. Unless things happened in his life exactly the way they did, in the order they did, everybody dies. And God is silent. God seems to be absent. He doesn't speak in Joseph's story. But what we find out is that God is actually the one that is managing every detail, orchestrating every event, and yes, overruling and overwhelming evil and harm that man may try to do to me to bring about salvation, redemption, 
and glory to him. Church, is that good news? Church, is that good news? I said last week, God's view says God's silence is not absence. God's view says God's hiddenness is not impotence. When things to us look to be going the most wrong, it is in those moments that God is most working and that you and I cannot. Just look at the surface of our life and go, God, you are either life is good, you're good, or life is hard, you're not there. But to be able to say, I have your view, life is hard. There's hardships, there's suffering, there's death, there's cancer. But God, I'm just checking my phone in the middle of it because I'm getting bored. Y'all don't seem like you're resonating this morning. So I'm just going to, no, it's not that. I got this email from a dear sister in the church and I was debating whether I should share it or not read it because of time. But I just feel like right now, somebody, somebody, somebody in this room. Dear Peter, as you know, I've been on a healing journey. Healing journey for her is depression, it's anxiety. There's eating disorders. There's all kinds of stuff for the last 17 months now. It's kind of like my own EHS journey that started with the ministries of Celebrate Recovery and the Great Banquet and has now branched into the realm of individual counseling. Recently, after processing the aftermath of some suppressed abuse, my counselors encouraged me to write a lament expressing some of the deep hurt and anger to my God for situations in the past. We prayed this lament last Friday before this past Sunday sermon. Here's an excerpt from her lament. Over and over again, nothing, silence. And not the good kind of silence either. Like the silence before a great truth bursting through. No, it's like an awful deafening silence. A silence that can't conjure up even though desperately, desperate, deafening. And so I ask again, what what do you want me to do with this? And even today, you're silent. What do I need to prove my love for you? Do you know that my love is terribly flawed? Because I'm not sure I would want my kind of love either. You speak in whispers and like a fine mist. For just a second, I can imagine your hand upon my knee, a warmish embrace, a choice moment of clarity, and you disappear. You effing disappear. And my heart stays yearning for this rescuer who won't leave again. And you are okay leaving me. My weakness is not made strong in you. My weakness is still very much weakness. And my knees are worn out in pursuit of a God who chooses not to relate to his daughter for some reason. I lose myself in stories of how much you love them. How you speak to them. How you minister to their hearts and their needs right where they are at. And I wonder why not me. For 35 years I have been your child you created me in that safe place you've been around and know my story you even intimately know those chemicals surging surging or not surging through my brain and you know how much I desire you just you you what must I do for you to show up I'm tired of waiting for you Jesus and then two days later I am reminded that every single event in Joseph's life needed to happen exactly in the way 
way they did and the order they did for the end result. And God never speaks in this story. The only story in Genesis where God seems utterly absent. And yet he was managing every detail, orchestrating every event, overwhelming and overruling in order to bring salvation. By the way, at this point, I'm going, man, she is paying attention. And then she says, God's silence was not his absence. God's hiddenness was not his impotence. He was so close, Peter, when things looked the most wrong. Healing journeys are difficult, especially as layer after layer are being peeled back and away. And there seems to be deafening silence from this God who is supposed to be sustaining you. Grateful from the depths of my soul for this reminder, this reminder from you and from Joseph's story that God is big and that God is good and that he is still very present despite the silence we sometimes feel. And now, is that encouraging? I I don't know how to say it any better. I don't know how to say it any better. So we move on to the next. Lastly, he images God's love. Verse 21, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is able to partner with God. Get this, church. To be a blessing to the very same people who betrayed him. The guy who has the power, and some of us so wish we had that power, to destroy the very same people and his family. Instead, he joins God to be a blessing. I want to tell you some truth this morning. God didn't bring us this far just to survive. God brought us this far so that your life would be a gift to be a blessing to people. I'll say that again. If you're sitting there this morning and saying, do you have any idea how jacked up my family was? Do you have any idea how messed up my family was? I am telling you right now, gospel truth, that God's desire wasn't just to deliver and save and redeem and heal us so that we could survive, but that God would use our lives as a gift of blessing to our families and to around us. You say, I can't do that, Peter. Here's how Joseph did it. First, Joseph's able to do this because he didn't put himself in God's place. He's that humble. They all come together. Joseph is able to do this because he's humble. He doesn't put himself in God's place and says, I'm better than you. But he's also able to do this because he's that confident. What do I mean? He's able to look back on his life and said, everything that happened is for me. Unless you have that humility to go, I'm not going to be in your chair. And the confidence to go, you're for me. You will not have the ability to be a blessing. And you say, how do we get that? Look to the ultimate Joseph. Look to the ultimate Joseph. Look to the ultimate Joseph. Centuries later, another someone came and he was stripped of his role. Centuries later, another someone came and he was sold for pieces of silver. Centuries later, another someone came and he was thrown into a pit. But the pit that he fell into was far greater. The cry that he cried was far greater. 
Because he wasn't just being stripped of his robe. He was being stripped of his heavenly father's love. Not church. Jesus was God. He's the only person who walked the face of the earth, who had the right and the authority and the privilege to sit in judgment. What does he do? Instead of taking that authority and that right, the only person who is, who is capable of, he comes off that chair, Philippians 2, and becomes a servant and becomes obedient even unto death by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. The only person on the face of the planet who has all authority to sit in judgment and judge sinners for our sins says, I choose instead to die for you. If that doesn't humble you and me, I don't know what will. Humility. But we also get confidence. We are fast approaching Good Friday and Easter. And I will remind you and me every single Sunday, as I always do, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God bringing good out of evil. The cross is the ultimate expression of man intending harm and evil and God being able to bring good out of it. And for any of us sitting here today lacking confidence of God, are you sure that everything that happens in my life, you are for me? How much more clearly than the cross can God demonstrate everything that happens in your life is for you? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all because he is for me. When we hit suffering, hardships, difficulties, instead of having the view down here that says either or, we could place our confidence in the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, my God is loving. My God is wise. Despite what people do, through what people do, regardless of what people do, he is fulfilling his purposes for me. God will not lose any of our past for our future. There is nothing. There is that our families or what anyone has done that will derail God's perfect plan for us. You can. I can. Go back in order to go forward. Heavenly Father, 
as we've done each Sunday. So I'm going to ask the prayer team to make their way, even as I'm praying, all the way up to the front, beyond the stage, to where the cross is. And they're going to station themselves back there to pray with you and to pray for you. We do have a a, a busy, full, packed day of launching this campaign, and I'm looking forward to seeing every one of you next door enjoying fellowship, lunch, listening for ways that we could be involved. But there is no, no way that I am going to end this service and wrap a nice bow around it and saying, well, there, now that you've heard, go do. For some of us, we're just literally realizing and coming to grips with our past and what's happened. For some of us, we've been on this journey. And like this dear sister email, perhaps it's been years of journeying, years, not just weeks and months, but years. And for some of us, we, by the grace and mercy of God, I had a good place. I want to thank the Lord for that. A good, healthy place of self-awareness and emotional health and loving well. And boy, what, a, what an enormous gift and a blessing that is. And we thank God for that. But I've said throughout this journey that we are in this together. No judgment and no criticism, no self-righteousness, but true, true solidarity of recognizing that we are all broken. We are all messed up. We are all in need of healing. say all that because this journey for many of us cannot happen apart from A, letting someone know and B, by entering into minimally prayer together because it's acknowledging that it is God who heals. So it's not just, hey, I need some prayer. It's recognizing that this is a vital part of my journey to ask prayer, to receive prayer, to share. So as you have done so courageously, church, throughout this series, any time after I'm done praying in the midst of giving, offering, and singing, come on up, go all the way to the back. There's privacy there. You could pray with them all the way to the front. I'm sorry. But what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to ask the ushers and greeters to come forward because I'm going to go ahead and pray. Will you all stand with me? Stand with me, church. Come on. And I'm going to pray right now for our tithes and our offering. And what I'd love for us to do is, as we give, is to respond in song. And as we are responding in song, feel free to pray. Come up for prayer. To the one who rules and reigns in all power and authority. To the one who sees all things and knows all things. To the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. 
to the one who desires our healing even more than we do, to the one who desires to do a powerful work in and through us to be a blessing. All glory, all honor and praise. Father, we give our tithes and our offering to you. And as we were reminded today by Bob and Pastor Caitlin, this is a vital part of us acknowledging that we are a part of this church family, that we are needed, necessary, critical, important, that things cannot happen apart from our participation and our giving. We recognize that. We acknowledge that as we give. We give for the salvation of people that are not here. We give for the healing of those who are broken who are not here. We give for the redemption of those who are not here. We give, God, for your kingdom work. In the name of the Father, the Son, and